from Ground Zero Radio, this is Democracy Now in Exile. Violated for too long. They have been kept out of the reconstruction, and actually, they have been everything has been stripped off them. All the basic human rights that are required for human existence. So, therefore, the Afghan without the Afghan women, I do not think um, the Afghanistan will be reconstructed. Afghan women meet in Brussels as warring factions divide the spoils of Afghanistan in Bonn. Then, a look at Somalia, the Somali community here in the U.S. where their banks and stores are being raided by the FBI and oil companies in Somalia. We'll talk to the UC Berkeley professor whose offices were also raided by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. All that and more coming up. Welcome to the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel launched massive air raids across the West Bank and Gaza City with F-16 warplanes attacking Gaza City and Apache helicopters rocketing Palestinian security offices in the southern Gaza Strip and on towns in the West Bank. The helicopters destroyed Arafat's three personal helicopters in Gaza City while bulldozers plowed up the runway at Palestinian International Airport. In Gaza City, F-16s fired missiles at the office of the Palestinian Preventive Security Service in a residential neighborhood. Hundreds of children fled a nearby school, dropping to the ground and screaming when warplanes swooped down. A doctor said two people, a 17-year-old student and a 20-year-old young man, were killed and dozens of children injured by shrapnel and debris. In his televised address last night, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon likened the attacks on Palestine to U.S. attacks on Afghanistan and said that Yasser Arafat bore responsibility for the attacks. Over the weekend, suicide bombers killed 26 Israelis and wounded nearly 200. Hamas claimed responsibility and said they were revenge for Israel's assassination of the Hamas military commander in the West Bank. The White House said yesterday that Israel has a right to defend herself while denying that President Bush had effectively encouraged Israel's attack. When he met Sharon on Sunday, President Bush notably omitted any call for Israeli restraint and administration officials didn't protest yesterday's attacks. The Bush administration froze the assets early today of financial groups accused of financing or Hamas, two administration officials speaking on condition of anonymity, said Bush would announce the action today. The freeze would apply to the assets of the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, an organization based in Richardson, Texas, that raised $13 million last year and is one of the largest Muslim charities in the United States. Rival Afghan groups meeting in Germany reached agreement on a post-Taliban interim government. We'll have more on that in just a few minutes. Australian combat troops have joined U.S. Marines who seized a remote air base in southern Afghanistan last week. A U.S. spokesman said the numbers of Australian troops and their equipment or mission details could not be released. Earlier, the Marines acknowledged the presence of liaison officers from Britain, Germany, and Australia at the base. The Marines seized the secret desert strip on November 25th and have since built up a force with support from other Marines and aircraft. 
After more than a week of grueling negotiations, the groups in Bonn agreed to accept the deployment of an international security force in Kabul and a symbolic role for the exiled former King Mohammed Zahir Shah, Another major stumbling block to a comprehensive power-sharing deal was also overcome when the powerful Northern Alliance presented its demand, its list of candidates to fill a six-month interim administration. With billions of dollars in reconstruction aid hinging on a deal and foreign diplomats applying pressure on delegates not to leave Bonn empty-handed, the alliance's old guard president, Rabbani, finally agreed to rubber stamp his camp's nominations. Meanwhile, U.S.-backed forces are massing outside Kandahar and U.S. planes are continuing to bomb the city. The Pentagon's hurriedly developing powerful new earth-penetrating weapons, but despite the current focus in Afghanistan, the main target has been not Islamist terrorists, but instead the nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons programs in countries like Iraq and North Korea. Some of the new bombs, missile warheads, and other armaments have already been built and tested. A classified status report on buried threats and the need for new weapons was delivered by the Pentagon to the Senate Armed Services Committee about a week ago. Pentagon and elected officials declined to comment. President Bush's homeland security chief, Tom Ridge, has once again put the nation on a high state of alert, citing vague threats of more terrorist attacks. The warning was the third issued by the government since the September 11th attacks and came after federal intelligence and law enforcement agencies picked up what appeared to be a higher quantity of threats. Asked if he worried that Americans were becoming jaded by the repeated alerts, Ridge said the process of warning the public is an art. It's not a science. There are shadowy soldiers. This is a shadowy enemy. A heavily overloaded sailboat with more than 180 Haitians was found off the coast of Florida yesterday, sending Coast Guard and National Park Service officials racing to rescue the hungry and dehydrated passengers before the boat capsized. A New Jersey judge sent four school teachers to jail yesterday for disobeying a return-to-work order. It's the first time in more than 20 years that striking teachers in New Jersey have been incarcerated. A 1,000 teachers and secretaries in the New Jersey suburb of Middletown Township are on strike over the cost of benefits. Hundreds of the jailed teachers' colleagues held a noisy rally. The U.S. military says it successfully completed a missile defense test yesterday, knocking a dummy warhead out of space more than 100 miles over the South Pacific. U.S. and Canadian officials unveiled a joint plan yesterday to tighten security along the 4,000-mile continental border while also working together more closely to stop people they say might commit terrorist acts from moving to North America. Don't let nothing keep you down. The sounds of blackness here on the War and Peace Report broadcasting just blocks from where the towers of the World Trade Center once stood. I'm Amy Goodman. The four Afghan factions holding talks in Bonn, Germany, have 
reached agreement on a U.N. blueprint for rebuilding the country's political system. The deal came early yesterday morning after the Northern Alliance, the largest delegation, finally submitted a list of its candidates for a 29-member interim administration to rule Afghanistan. The next step, expected to begin immediately, will be to choose which factions get which jobs. The interim administration will rule for six months until a commission is formed to convene a lawyer jirga, a traditional grand assembly. The assembly would then elect a transitional government to rule for about two years until a constitution is drawn up and elections are held. Under intense international pressure, the interim administration is expected to include at least one woman as one of the five deputy prime ministers and several other women as ministers. While talks continue in Bonn, talks of a different sort are underway in Brussels, Belgium, where the first Afghan women's summit is being held. Fifty Afghan women representing a wide range of ethnic and religious groups and political views have gathered, supported by women's rights groups from around the world. They're working to forge unified demands on the need for women's equality and for their full participation in conflict resolution efforts and in the formation of a future Afghan government. We go now to Brussels to Ziba Shurashamli with the Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights in Afghanistan. Thanks for stepping outside the meeting. Can you tell us what the situation is there? Well, um, the gathering at, um, at Brussels is for the Afghan women to come up with a, um, a, a blueprint of their own as to uh, what they want um, uh, and their involvement in the peace processes as well as reconstruction, future government of Afghanistan. In other words, whoever the Afghan government may be in the future, our message is that there has to be a proportional representation of women in every aspect of the Afghan uh, future, uh, not only the reconstruction, uh, as well as the government. And um, so um, because the women were not really represented uh, uh, proportionally at the uh, bond process. So um, this, uh, the women are talking about what they want. And um, uh, hopefully by the end of this summit, we will come up with a declaration of what their requests are and what their demands are. But this summit isn't binding in any way. No, it is not binding, but we will try to uh, push the, what comes out of this summit at the UN international level, as well as the key government players, six plus two, um, and U.S., uh, who are uh, involved in Afghanistan. We will try to, um, uh, I mean, the Afghan women's rights have been violated for too long. They have been kept out of the reconstruction, and actually they have been Everything has been stripped off them, all the basic human rights that are required for human existence. So therefore, the Afghan, without the Afghan women, I do not think um, the Afghanistan will be reconstructed because there are um, 55 to 60 percent of the uh, population of Afghanistan are women, and there would be any justice, without, any peace without justice in the Afghan women demand to be involved in every aspect of their um, society. Ziba Shurashamli, w- what do you think of uh, the formula that they came up with in Bonn, the interim administration of Afghanistan expected to include at least one woman uh, as one of the five deputy prime ministers and several other women as ministers? 
Well, that, uh, that tell you right there, it doesn't represent the Afghan women. One woman out of 55% or 60% of the population of a country, uh, um, I, I do not understand as an Afghan woman why always um, UN and, and other countries sell out the Afghan women and settled, settled for, for, to please the warring faction and political uh, uh, parties who have been in power and who are the cause of uh, the operation of Afghan women. Somebody has to listen to the Afghan woman because the Afghan woman is not going to be satisfied with one woman represented in interim government or they, they would not be represented proportionally. By that I mean we are more than uh, the men are in the Lujerge. So um, again, I said there would not be peace without justice. And, and we will demand and we will resist. Our message to future uh, so-called government of Afghanistan, whoever it may be, is that if they do not include, and our message, I'm talking about Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights in Afghanistan, if they do not include proportional representation of Afghan women in the government, in the reconstruction and future of Afghanistan, that we will resist them, we will mobilize the world as we did against the Taliban, we will mobilize it against them as well. Uh, so we are determined on this, and we would not compromise these rights uh, because the rights are not only given to us by Islam, it is given, uh, also given to us by the United Charters. So we want those rights, and we want a full participation. We want the full restoration of the Afghan women's rights, and that's our demand, and we would not budge. Is the UN participating in your talks? Uh, the UN, uh, oh, yes. The, the, some of the, uh, the UNIFAM uh, uh, um, executive director, Nalin Heiser, is here, as well as Ms. Angela King, who is uh, representing, I mean, representing the um, uh, um, security, security secretary general, uh, Kofi Annan. So they are here, and as well as uh, people from European par uh, Parliament, um, uh, or uh, union, so there are many uh, important women here, and uh, we, um, as, as I said, see, we don't have any problem with the women uh, uh, important people. We have a problem with the men uh, in the UN and as well in Afghanistan, as well in other governments, because they seem to be selling us out uh, for to please the warring faction who has abused our rights and has caused the, the, the severe operation of the Afghan women. So uh, they should negotiate with us, with the Afghan women, as well as with the people of Afghanistan. And other demand that we have is that the local uh, autonomy of Afghanistan, the local population autonomy must be respected. No one can impose a government from outside onto Afghan people. Ziba Shamli, to what extent uh, are you, the Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights in Afghanistan, um, communicating with or possibly negotiating with the Afghan military, the Northern Alliance, uh, those that are going to be in power now? They haven't contacted us. They uh, don't think they care for us because we ask for um, something that is ours. We ask for justice. Neither has the other political parties who are involved in the in the bond process. Uh, we 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 are not. You know, they know that we would not 
compromise the rights of the Afghan women uh, for, for anything. So therefore, um, uh, I mean, we haven't been contacted, and, and uh, that, uh, that doesn't bother us. Uh, we, we want uh, the rights of the women to be restored, so we go to the international community and we go to the people of Afghanistan. If they violate it, if they don't represent the Afghan women. Otherwise, if this government or future government is elected, it's democratic, represents all women, all, all different ethnic groups of Afghanistan as well as women, and women are included in every reconstruction, every other aspect of the public domain, uh, we don't have any problem uh, with that government. We will support it 100%. But if they're going to play the game again and, 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 and just uh, hang on to the power and do not share power with more than half of the society, uh, that's not going to work out and, and it's going to fail. And the reason the U.N. peace negotiation so far has failed in Afghanistan is because the U.N. has always negotiated with the warring faction, the people in power, or countries surrounding the Afghanistan who supported the warring faction and, and caused all the misery in Afghanistan. So what we want is for the U.N. and U.S., which is a key player, in the other six plus two who are involved in Afghanistan, to talk six plus two is the six countries surrounding Afghanistan, two is U.S. and Russia, which has caused our pain, that stop negotiating with them. They should negotiate with the people of Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan have the right for self-determination. And I don't think the people of Afghanistan in any way are against women involvement in the reconstruction and other uh, uh, building of the Afghan society or the government of Afghan society. Ziba Shur Shamli of the Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights. When Northern Alliance took Kabul, uh, the women, a group of about 100 women led by uh, Suralia Perlika, uh, mm -hmm. attempted to march to the United Nations demanding their rights and um, lifting up their burqas. Uh, they were stopped not by the Taliban, but by the Northern Alliance. Uh, what do you know of uh, the group in uh, Kabul right now? Oh, well, there are some uh, elements within the Northern Alliance that are not uh, bad, but there are elements in, in Northern Alliance that, according to us, according to Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights in Afghanistan, are war criminals. And we have asked also, called on the UN to investigate and bring to justice the, the, um, the, the war criminals of Soviet era, uh, war criminals during um, uh, the Mujahideen and the war criminals during uh, the Taliban. So um, how could, uh, well, that tells you by itself when, when the women are stopped uh, from um, demonstrating and expressing, expressing themselves, which is their rights, not only uh, the UN rights came 50 years ago or 50 some years ago about, these rights were given to the Muslims, to the Afghan women in 6th century AD. So when, when the Northern Alliance does that, not only it violates the international law, it violates the Islamic law. So, I mean, there they tell you, so we have to uh, get women involved and we have to struggle for full restoration of Afghan women, it doesn't matter who the government is.
Finally, how do you see uh, women on the ground in Afghanistan building up civil society right now? Well, they're trying in this uh, meeting that we have. There are women already in the refugee camps and some inside Afghanistan that are trying to uh, put their life together to try to um, educate children to health and many, many um, issues that that is really too vast to talk um, about what is happening in Afghanistan. The Afghan woman right now, Afghan woman child, needs food, shelter, and, and, and uh, med- medical care. Many women are dying, and, and there was the latest report was uh, by World Health Organization, uh, it was last week, that uh, because of wearing the burqa, that the uh, rate of tuberculosis has risen very high among the Afghan women. Uh, because they had, uh, they were denied sunshine under the Taliban rule, as well as uh, there are 300,000 to uh, 400,000 pregnant women inside Afghanistan without any prenatal uh, um, delivery or postnatal care, and one every four child in Afghanistan die. So that tells you how dire is the need for medical attention in Afghanistan. At the same time, what we want is that the UN. Uh, must move uh, and, and demilitarize the, the city of Kabul. The peacekeeping forces of UN or, as they decided, some Muslim countries that have offered that should move into the uh, city of Kabul. There has to be security and security for women. The, the women in Afghanistan, there is no security for them. There is no sense of peace. So they should be protected. Uh, and but the first thing that I urge the international community is uh, to get the food uh, to them as soon as possible. I guess I have to go because I have I have I'm called for a meeting. I'm sorry, but thank you for giving me the time to bring um, to you the voices of the Afghan women. Well, Ziba Shura Shamli, thank you for taking time coming out of the meeting where you are in Brussels to speak with our listeners and viewers around the country on the War thank and you. Peace Report. Thank you. Ziba Shura Shamli is with the Women's Alliance for Peace and Human Rights in Afghanistan. When we come back, we'll be taking a look at uh, Bush and Rumsfeld's widened war on terrorism as they target, among other countries, Somalia. Stay with us. We shall not, we shall not be
we shall not be moved, a democracy now in exile standard. Here at the War and Peace Report, I'm Amy Goodman, broadcasting just blocks from the first Ground Zero, just outside the firehouse of downtown community television where our studios are. There is a military checkpoint with Army Humvees, soldiers, National Guard state troopers, and police stopping various vehicles. Well, the Los Angeles Times is reporting that the Bush administration has quietly begun dispatching diplomatic military intelligence and law enforcement agents to Asia, taking aim at al-Qaeda hubs in at least seven countries, they say. Several administration officials specifically cited the Philippines, Somalia, and Yemen as top priorities. Also mentioned Malaysia, Indonesia, and the former Soviet republics of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Officials admit that the effort marks a significant shift in foreign policy. Meanwhile, Sunday British papers indicate that the Bush administration has gone a step further. The London Observer reported that President Bush has already ordered the CIA and his senior military commanders to draw up detailed plans for an attack on Iraq. The plan would involve a combined operation with U.S. bombers attacking from the air, while U.S. forces assist opposition groups in the North and the South in a stage-managed uprising. The Sunday Telegraph reported that the U.S. has asked Britain to help prepare military strikes against Somalia. Today we're going to take an extended look at Somalia and U.S. interest there. We'll be joined by the founder of the Northeast African Oil Project, which has tracked activities of over 170 oil companies in the region. Uh, she's had her offices raided. She's a professor at UC Berkeley. We'll also be joined by a former member of the Underground Eritrean People's Liberation Front, as well as the UN coordinator on Somalia. But first we go to Josh Meyer, staff writer for the LA Times in Washington, D.C., to talk about the Bush administration's moves to extend the so-called war on terror to at least seven different countries. Welcome to the War and Peace Report, Josh Meyer. Morning. What are the indications in Washington of this expanded war? Well, at this point, it's a very behind-the-scenes effort. I think uh, the president himself said uh, early on that this is the kind of war that you're not going to be seeing too much of. It's a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, diplomatic, military, intelligence, and law enforcement efforts. Uh, but what they're doing is they're putting people on the ground in Asia and Africa, uh, in some cases military advisors, in, in the case of the Philippines. And what they're doing is they're trying to lay the groundwork for uh, the next step in the war on terrorism. And they're taking, taking aim at these al-Qaeda hubs in about seven countries. Um, uh, the Philippines, for one, is, is, a, is, a, is a big area of interest. And Somalia. And if they get the governments of these countries to cooperate, what do they get in return? Uh, well, I think, it, uh, you know, we talked to a, uh, a counterterrorism expert at Harvard who, who aptly noted that uh, you really need to go along with uh, the, the host governments in many of these countries because they are allies. It's not like Afghanistan where you can drop some bombs on them. Uh, you have to work with a country in a sort of a carrot-and-stick approach and get their cooperation. Uh, in some cases, though, they're expecting that they're not going to get cooperation or they might get uh, uh, half-hearted cooperation. In those cases, they might consider military action, uh, certainly in the case of Somalia. Uh, where there doesn't seem to be much of a government there to, to work with. And in the Philippines, are they getting military equipment? Uh, the Philippines, Bush has uh, promised them tens of millions of dollars uh, to, to help take out a group called Abu Sayyaf, which is an al-Qaeda-connected group which has kidnapped two Americans and kept them hostage for about six months. And they've also uh, bedeviled um, U.S. authorities for years because they've been a very active and militant group. But um, this marks a shift in foreign policy because uh, – 
for the past at least eight years, the government has, uh, U.S. government has, has been very hesitant to get involved in, in the affairs of other countries, thinking that it was more of an internal problem for them to handle alone. But as one uh, intelligence official said to us, uh, you know, after September 11th, uh, we no longer think that way. We, we realize that countries that far away can, uh, quote, come up and bite us. So now they're taking a look at getting involved. And then Somalia, which we're going to take a look at for the rest of the program, um, if they uh, bombed Somalia, if the United States government bombed Somalia, uh, there isn't really a government uh, fully in place that would protest or could rally world opinion against in a campaign like that. Right, that's correct. Um, you know, I, I think that they would try to... There, there's, there's been a lot of talk in the last week or so about how the military has gotten so good at surgical airstrikes that uh, the, the concept of bombing a country now is not what it used to be. It's not as much carpet bombing as it is uh, surgical strikes. But as we've, we've also seen, some of these surgical strikes land in the wrong places and kill allies of us and innocent people, too. So uh, I think it'll be controversial no matter what happens, even if there isn't a government there to protest. But it is on the table. Josh Meyer, you're the first here in the United States to write about this. Uh, what are your sources? I can't say, but uh, there's a broad array of people that are talking about this. Uh, I think a lot of them try to talk about it discreetly, but I think that they are trying to get the message out there that the war on terrorism is continuing, and it's uh, continuing on many fronts, especially now that the war in Afghanistan is, is uh, plateauing, I think is, is a word somebody used to describe it. Uh, there's also been a major crackdown in Europe that we've done with uh, European allies in, in, uh, in uh, England and France and Germany and Italy and Belgium and other countries. There's been literally dozens of al-Qaeda members rounded up and, and taken into custody. Alleged al-Qaeda members. Alleged, yeah. excuse me, yes. Uh -huh. um, when it comes to some of these countries like Uzbekistan, they say they're targeting the opposition. Mm -hmm. um, it's also shoring up governments that are highly repressive. Uh, that's you know, that's one of the tricky aspects of this. I mean, you're, you're getting into a, a confluence of, of politics and law enforcement, diplomacy and military all at the same time, and it can get very tricky. There is a group in uh, Uzbekistan called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, whom uh, President Bush uh, singled out recently as a particularly virulent subset of the al-Qaeda network, allegedly, of course. Um, and in some, some of these countries, uh, those terrorism groups uh, are, are often uh, associated with the host government. In some cases, it may, might even be uh, uh, even affiliated with them, or at least members of them. Well, Josh Meyer, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Josh Meyer is a staff reporter for the Los Angeles Times based in Washington. As we expand our focus on Somalia, we turn to Claudia Carr, who is a professor uh, UC Berkeley, uh, University of California, Berkeley, head of the Northeast East African Oil Project, engaged in field work and research with African governments and international aid groups for 25 years, also a former board of directors member of the National Acad Academy of Sciences. Welcome to the War and Peace Report. Good morning, Amy. Nice to be with you. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, you've been looking at uh, Somalia and particularly tracking oil company interests there. How many oil companies are operating in this country that uh, has hardly a functioning government? In Somalia, per se, I don't know that anybody has an accurate number because companies are in and out of uh, Somalia. They have really been establishing leases and uh, uh, concessions and so forth in Somalia 
certainly since the 50s, and it's been a very dynamic process. What we can say is we know that Conoco Oil is extremely active there right now. They have remained active. They have uh, been one of the major political forces, really, uh, in the country in terms of their relations with uh, Western foreign policy and military actions and so forth. But there is a whole array that certainly includes companies of Chevron, Continental Oil, uh, Hunt Oil, uh, Ajib, uh, the Total, and Elf, uh, French interests, and so forth. So there is quite an array. Some are active now. Some are pretty much waiting in the wings until things are, let us say, uh, economically and politically feasible to really begin operating either again or for the first time. Professor Carr, how did your project get started, the Northeast East African Oil Project at Berkeley? Well, I think, uh, Amy, many people, uh, Somalis themselves, uh, other citizens of the region, one of whom I think you're going to talk to momentarily, uh, myself and many workers, really were not aware, despite working there for many years, about the oil factor per se in Somalia, really until 1992 when the Marines and the U.S. military action happened. And interestingly enough, it was in L.A. Times, again, uh, journalist Mark Feynman, who actually somehow tripped onto some information and exposed uh, the oil presence specifically. He exposed that just prior to the Marines and U.S. military action in uh, Somalia, which was widely, uniformly put out, really, in the media as to liberate the Somali people from their warlords, uh, I think we should read into that to some extent clan leaders who had been armed by the U.S. and other powers. But prior to that U.S. military action, about two-thirds of Somalia had been set out in concessions to four U.S. oil corporations. That was Conoco, Amoco, Phillips, and Chevron. So I think that alerted everybody from high-level Somalis who actually did not know to the rest of us. And it was at that time that uh, Jeff Gritzner, a uh, professor up at University of Montana, and I started this project since then. It's grown with many people participating in it at various times. A week or two ago, Professor Carr, we had on uh, Tom Squitieri uh, talking about the repressive regime of Uzbekistan and the fact that 7,000 political prisoners uh, are being held there. Um, now, you have been contacting him in Uzbekistan, is that right? Yes, I was prior to. He's returned now, of course, but I was in touch at that time. Uh-huh. And it was a similar situation, of course, and that the American public in particular, but I think we have to extend that to a lot of the European public in Central Asia, but most certainly in Northeast Africa, is so unaware of what this oil factor is in this region. And if I might just throw in, the kind of reserves that we're talking about here are large by any standards. And uh, just as a, a quick notation, in Somalia and just the surrounding area, part of uh, Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea and so forth, not the rest of the region we've been looking at, which is probably far larger reserves. Just in this immediate area, we are probably talking about estimates up to about 40 billion barrels of oil. Uh, you mentioned uh, Uzbekistan and uh, Skitieri's work there. The Kazakhstan reserves, for example, are only 10 billion barrels estimated. So that's a lot of oil. For gas, the figure is equally impressive. It's something like 160 trillion cubic feet of gas in this immediate area, and that's by North Sea or any other standards, uh, a huge amount of gas reserves. This is, mind you, very tough, tough information to come across because these companies in Europe, Russia, and the U.S. are all playing offense and defense with each other, of course, and they keep their 
information very close to the chest in terms of how big these reserves really are. So how do you get it? How do you get the information? Well, I think it's been interesting uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of work through corporate information, through friendly people who leak information, through actually accessible information that may not be so obvious and so forth. A lot of it is through the petroleum geologists and so forth. So we, ha we have really multiple multiple ways of doing it. We don't have to work on rumor. There is data, but it's hard and uh, certainly to make it systematic. But I think we're closing in on that. Professor Carr, is it true that the FBI raided your offices? Oh, that actually was nothing to do with the Somalia project. It actually had more to do with uh, oil and gas communications, possibly uh, quite innocent, actually, uh, rather technical about Central Asia and so forth, and uh, we did get it straightened out, but it's not the first time that kind of thing has happened, and simply to what try do you to mean? get information on an important topic to them. What do you mean it's not the first time that's happened? Well, because I've worked in the Horn for many years, uh, I think most people in the Horn uh, face a similar situation, which is the role of intelligence, the role of intelligence and military, international aid and corporate uh, relations. This is a, such a strong, tight nexus, and there is very little visibility about how any of these people are operating. So when you work there as a technical person in development or anything, or just living uh, your life and doing some research, it's very easy to get targeted by intelligence circles, and that's happened to me. It's happened to many of my friends. So when the FBI uh, raids your office, they take the information that you've collected? It's sort of an inexpensive way to <laughs> to sort of piggyback off of your research. You get yes, it. Yes, they well break I've in and take it. I've learned to dialogue with those circles over the years, and I have lost everything from a book manuscript to uh, photographs over years to field notes, you name it. And uh, it's just part of the territory, really, of working in that region. We're talking to Professor Claudia Carr. Uh, she's at UC Berkeley, heads up the Northeast East African Oil Project. Um, we're also joined on the telephone um, by a guest uh, who has also been following closely what's happening in Somalia, uh, Elias Hapte Selassie, uh, part of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which formed the government on independence in 1992, was a former high-level government official in Ethiopia one of the coordinators of the Somalia program of the Swedish NGO, the Life and Peace Institute. Um, can you talk about how you go from Eritrea to Somalia? Um, what are the connections? Well, the connections are many. Uh, we are part of uh, a region which is tied by geography, history, uh, culture, which is called the Horn of Africa. But uh, apart from that, I mean, I think it was Somalia, the only country that uh, assisted us during our uh, liberation struggle throughout the years. It was the only country that recognized us and gave us support. So I think in some ways... Somalia was yes, the only I'm country the, that I, assisted in the Eritrean struggle. Yes, the Eritrean struggle. That is uh, part of payment of, uh, of due, which uh, is uh, quite... Uh, an honor for me to work in Somalia, on the other hand. I am, I am doing a paid job. I couldn't pretend I am doing voluntary. But on the other hand, I feel uh, quite committed to what I'm doing. But I came uh, as, a, as an official of UNDP, and I worked with the NDP Somalia. I got frustrated with the bureaucracy, because the Swedish organization which is working on peace and uh, governance issues uh, employed me to coordinate their program uh, in Somalia in 1997. 
uh, I should say we don't have the greatest phone line. Uh, we're speaking to Elias Hapte Selassie in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, about Somalia. Can you talk about the history of Somalia, particularly uh, the U.S. involvement? Well, uh, I think after the Second World War, there was uh, the major powers. I mean, I think uh, who controlled uh, Africa, mainly France and Britain, were losing their grip. And the United States uh, came uh, to try to take its share as an emerging superpower. And uh, at that Ethiopia uh, was the, the country that was friendly with the United States. And uh, Somalia was uh, a newly formed country, uh, joining the northern part, which was under the British, and the southern, which was Italian. Uh, there was a lot of, of, of processes that have gone from 1950s to when independence was coming until the time in Somalia gained independence, which was uh, in 1960s, playing part of Somalia. And there is a big chunk, which is called the Ogaden, which is uh, Somali populated, which is in Ethiopia. And I think this was what set the into, into conflict. Uh, the conflict dynamics in the Horn of Africa was uh, the contest where Somalis uh, wanted to unite all the Somali-speaking people of the Horn of Africa into one nation called Somalia, whereas uh, Ethiopia was also uh, contesting that. And I think the superpowers were trying an ally when uh, Ethiopia fell into into the the, the, the the relief of the U.S. and the Soviets were uh, that come to their fold, and the, I think dynamics came uh, after that. I and mean, there has been uh, uh, trading of alliances uh, after the Haidas in 1974 and takeover of the Ethiopian military junta called the DERG. Uh, the the U.S. lost its hold in Ethiopia, so it traded. Somalia and the Russians jumped from Somalia and uh, took the space of, of, of the U.S. in Ethiopia. And I think the confrontation of the superpowers has been part of the history uh, and the entire dynamics of conflict in the Horn of Africa. We have to break for stations to identify themselves. So we're talking to Elias Hapte Selassie, uh, part of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, um, formed uh, the government in Eritrea. Uh, 1992, former high-level uh, government official in Ethiopia, now one of the coordinators of the Somalia program of the Swedish NGO, the Life and Peace Institute, speaking to him in Nairobi, Claudia Carr, professor at UC Berkeley, head of the Northeast East African Oil Project. When we come back, we're going to be joined by um, uh, Asha Samad, who is uh, Somali herself, and we'll talk about the effect of the U.S. targeting Somali businesses here in the United States, the FBI raiding those businesses, particularly um, money institutions. And we'll also look at the effect of those raids on the people of Somalia. You're listening to the War and Peace Report. Back in a minute.
Who gets the money? One World Tribe here on the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today we're taking a look at Somalia. This weekend, War Secretary Donald Rumsfeld left open the possibility that Somalia could be a military target as the U.S. seeks to expend its so-called war, uh, expand its so-called war on terrorism. Rumsfeld said, Somalia has been a place that has harbored al-Qaeda and to my knowledge still is. The warnings by Rumsfeld and President Bush have caused intense anxiety among allies from Britain to Egypt, who've warned of an intense backlash if the U.S. widens the scope of its military action. In many ways, however, the U.S. has already begun to target Somalia, one of the few countries that matches Afghanistan in the depth of its poverty and suffering. Since early November, federal authorities have sought to close Somali businesses abroad and have raided locally owned Somali businesses and U.S. branches of Somali financial institutions such as Barakat Enterprise. Barakat operates what are known as hawalas, basically low-budget Western Union operations often tucked into the back of Somali grocery stores. The Hawalas are virtually the only means for thousands of Somali refugees and immigrants living in the U.S. to send many back home. Millions of Somalis are utterly dependent on the Hawalas for their survival. U.S. officials have accused Barakat and other Somali businesses of funneling millions of dollars to Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda network. But U.S. actions, according to U.N. officials and Somali activists, are having a devastating impact on what's already one of the world's poorest countries, compounding the suffering of its most vulnerable citizens. We turn now to Asha Samad. She is the former director of the Women's Studies Program and professor of African and Caribbean Studies at City College here in New York and executive director of the Somali Association for Relief and Development. Can you talk about the situation here for Somalis in the United States? For the last uh, two and a half to three weeks, uh, many of the businesses have been raided, usually very early in the morning, about 6 o'clock, when they're uh, opening up. Uh, Quite a few uh, have persons that don't speak English or very little English. Uh, Officials come in with flashing badges and letters stating that on the 23rd of September, a law was passed allowing the uh, Treasury Department to shut down uh, the money transfer stores, called um, the main one called Al-Barakat. And, um, however, the money transfer stores are usually parts of complexes that include a supermarket or mini-market, uh, which is the main part of the store, and then another section or room or rented area, which is... Um, uh, Islamic books, tapes, Somali books, tapes, and clothing, and other uh, types of um, cultural products, which are especially well-stocked now because Ramadan has uh, started uh, two weeks ago. And uh, thirdly, the money transfer stores, which also are notary publics and translation shops. So they're all in the same complex, usually rented to different people, but quite often when they come to close down the home, the um, Hawala al-Barakat uh, section, they not only take the equipment related to money transfer, but other things related to um, translation and uh, uh, notary public books and records, and but also even the grocery items down to toilet paper and uh, uh, perishables like milk, and also the Quran shop, the clothing, the tapes and books. In fact, in many cases, they've taken everything from the complex except the radiators, even taken the refrigerators. 
So this causes, of course, a shock. And also persons in the community are accustomed to shopping there because the products they want, Muslim Somali products, are not sold at other nearby shops. So they are really inconvenienced, especially during Ramadan, when they particularly need these materials. Other persons are made un unemployed because the shop complex has closed. And when customers come to the shop, they're questioned as to what do they know about the shop owners and so on. And most of them just say, look, this is just the place we come to shop. And, uh, you know, they've been here since the community has been here. What's the problem? And if they want to close down the money transfer shop, why close down the food shop and the clothing and bookshop all at the same time? This is a very serious thing because Somalia is a country that does not have postal services. It's a country that's been in conflict for close to 11 years. There's no way of sending money by postal or wiring. Wiring. There's also only one small uh, Western Union in the capital, in one side of the capital. Even persons on the other side of the capital cannot cross over because of a civil conflict. So there's no way of sending funds. To make matters worse, about a week and a half, about a week and a half ago, the U.S. began to close down all through AT&T all telephone and internet contact with the country, shutting it off. So persons have no way of communicating with their impoverished, uh, desperate relatives who only exist with their with their support, both financial and otherwise. So this is quite a serious problem. Additionally, since 9/11, many members of the community have been physically attacked beaten up, including children, old people, old men. For example, on the 14th of October in Minneapolis, which is the biggest Somali community in the United States, a 60-year-old man, Ali Shere Wasami, was brutally beaten by a group of um, white men at a bus stop while he was waiting for a bus. Witnesses reported this to the police, who up to now have done nothing about it. He later died and he was taken to hospital where he died on the 24th of October. Others have, are in comas, and uh, some have been released from hospital. So uh, children are afraid to go to school because they are terrorized by American children of different races uh, who, due to the media, are blaming them for 9-11. Many children stay home, or they're just uh, really afraid to go to school. Uh, adults also have been attacked. This is quite a serious problem. And because Somalis are noticeable, they face, of course, uh, many levels of discrimination as foreigners, as Africans, as Muslims. Asha Samad uh, is the executive director of the Somali Association for Relief and Development. We're also joined on the line by Randolph Kent, who is the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia. He is here in New York. Randolph Kent, um, the effect of the closing of Barakat Enterprises, uh, these financial institutions in the United States, on the people of Somalia? First of all, I do agree that it is very, very worrying. But let me just put this in context. I think it is not merely the closure of this very important remittance house, but it has to be taken in the context of a major drought, which we <clears throat> estimate is affecting one way or another about 800,000 vulnerable Somalis. Uh, in addition to that, we have the continuing ban on the export of Somali livestock or the import from uh, to the Gulf states. 
which is, again, having a very significant impact upon the livelihoods of the Somali people. In addition to that, we also have rampant inflation. Um, last year, we, ass we uh, assumed that the dollar would get, on the average, about 8,000 shillings. Uh, we now uh, are getting indications that one dollar is 25,000 shillings or more. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, it is not a barakat alone, but it is the cumulative effect of these four factors that we are very concerned will drive the Somali economy to the brink. And if I may just say, what is particularly uh, unfortunate in this context is that while Somalia has... Uh, had a very difficult past decade. I think over the last two or three years, one begins to see very positive signs of a pattern of stability. At the same time, this has been supported by an economy that is slowly growing. And now to bring the, the economy to the brink of disaster, uh, we are very concerned that this in turn will lead to perhaps a, a real retrogression in terms of uh, the stability which we have seen evolve over the past two or three years. Mm. What evidence uh, does the Bush administration have that uh, al-Qaeda uh, is uh, taking the money of these uh, al-Barakat business? Yeah, I, I'm, all I can say is I, I don't know. Uh, we haven't been informed what evidence there is. Amy, I might just add one uh, quick statement on that, if I, if I might, or just one piece of information that I think has emerged. Professor Carr of UC Berkeley. Yes, and that is that when this accusation or concern was first voiced by the Bush administration, as I understand it through local sources there, uh, the Barakat offices did in fact invite uh, the U.S. government to come uh, to go through all of their records on all levels and to work with them uh, about what their concerns were and to, in fact, be able to show the U.S. that uh, this either didn't exist or if it did, that it would be taken care of and to just really go over the complexities. Instead, uh, the U.S. government did not take that option. It did, in fact, go straight to the Saudis, which, of course, was the nerve center of that communication system, and simply cut it off. So it, it never did respond to their invitation. In, in addition, uh, the U.S. has cut off the Somali Internet Company, uh, Randolph Kent, what is the effect of that? Well, I, I think this is just another step in isolating uh, the Somali community when, in fact, we need to engage more and more. The international community has a fascinating uh, possibility of working closely with Somalis, engaging them, trying to help uh, cr establish systems of modern governance, bearing in mind the traditions and norms of the society, Somalia could really be a template for similar societies that are going through these kind of very fundamental social transitions. Uh, to disengage, to isolate, will be not only to lose a very important example of how one really can provide stability to these sort of situations, but will inevitably alienate the people of Somali who are desperate to engage with the outside world.
And as a United Nations humanitarian coordinator for Somalia, what would the effect of the U.S. bombing of Somalia uh, be uh, with the uh, indications are Somalia is at the top of the list of countries apart from Afghanistan that could be targeted by U.S. military strikes? Let me just say that I certainly know nothing about th those kind of plans. So for me, this would be just a hypothetical case. But were this to come true, uh, I think that the alienation process would be very quick, and I think that uh, we would find ourselves in a situation in which, rather than developing the kind of relations the, uh, to try and strengthen the efforts which have been made to have a more stable society, uh, all of that would be lost. And uh, I think it would be a throwback uh, to the anarchy that we had seen a decade before. Professor Carr, why do you think the U.S. is really thinking about bombing Somalia? Well, I, you ask such an important question, Amy. I think the big issue here is to really try to understand what is, in fact, driving U.S. foreign policy here, because it would appear, including from some of the things that uh, Randolph Kent just said, that it's highly contradictory and that there is no coherent policy, that the different arms uh, are really working against one another. For example, the, quite apart from the anti-terrorism component, which is not documented or this sort of thing, and so that raises many problems, including by certain congressional members now, it raises the issue, as Randolph just said, of the devastation and uh, destruction of what is being built now, quote-unquote civil society is uh, one of the, the terms, the devastation of the massive refugee and poverty areas that is at least one arm of U.S. foreign policy in terms of trying to alleviate and contribute to those. On the other hand, there is the anti-terrorism one, and on the third hand, a lesson that apparently some are concerned may not have been learned from the 1992 uh, experience of the we U.S. We have military. 10 seconds. Sorry, yes. And that is that even it's destroying the very structure for future development. Ironically, that includes for the oil and gas corporations themselves as well. Uh, all of this, however, is pretty uh, quiet dialogue at the time. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Uh, Randolph Kent, uh, the UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia, and Claudia Carr, uh, professor at University of California, Berkeley. Her office is raided by the FBI as she gathers information on oil companies doing business in Somalia. That does it for this program. In our next hour, Noam Chomsky just returned from Pakistan. Democracy Now! in Exile is produced by Chris Abrams, Brad Simpson, Miranda Kennedy, Lizzie Ratner, as well as Suganya Mahendran. Anthony Sloan is our music maestro and engineer. Errol Maitland at the helm at WBIX.org. Go to our website at democracynow.org. We're broadcasting in exile from the embattled studios of WBAI and the studios of the band and the fire at the studios of our listeners. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. From Ground Zero Radio, this is Democracy Now in Exile.
Israel launches air raids on Palestinian cities, hits close to Yasser Arafat. We'll speak with Professor Noam Chomsky about the war against Afghanistan, the expansion of Bush's so-called war on terrorism. Chomsky's just returned from a month in Pakistan. Then ensuring terrorism and nuclear risks after September 11th, is it an industry bailout? All that and more coming up. Welcome to the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Rival Afghan groups meeting in Germany reached agreement on a post-Taliban interim government. After more than a week of grueling negotiations, the groups agreed to accept the deployment of an international security force in Kabul and a symbolic role for the exiled former King Mohammed Zahir Shah. Another major stumbling block to a comprehensive power-sharing deal was also overcome when the powerful Northern Alliance presented its list of candidates to fill a six-month interim administration. With billions of dollars in reconstruction aid hinging on a deal and foreign diplomats plying pressure on delegates not to leave Bonn empty-handed, the alliance's old guard president, Rabani, finally agreed to rubber stamp his camp's nominations. Meanwhile, U.S.-backed forces are massing outside Kandahar and U.S. planes are continuing to bomb. Australian combat troops have joined U.S. Marines who seized a remote air base in southern Afghanistan last week. A U.S. spokesman said the numbers of Australian troops and their equipment or mission details could not be released. Earlier, the Marines acknowledged the presence of liaison officers from Britain, Germany, and Australia at the base. The Marines seized this secret desert airstrip on November 25th and have since built up a force with support from other Marines and aircraft. Israel launched massive air raids across the West Bank and Gaza City with F-16 warplanes attacking Gaza City and Apache helicopters rocketing Palestinian security offices in the southern Gaza Strip and in towns in the West Bank. The helicopters destroyed Yasser Arafat's three personal helicopters in Gaza City while bulldozers plowed up the runway at Palestinian International Airport. In Gaza City, when the F-16s fired missiles at the office of the Palestinian Preventive Security Service, it was in a residential neighborhood. Hundreds of children fled a nearby school, dropping to the ground and screaming when warplanes swooped down. A doctor said two people, a 17- and a 20-year-old, were killed and dozens of children were injured by the shrapnel and debris. In his televised address last night, Israeli Prime Minister Arl Sharon likened the attacks on Palestine to U.S. attacks on Afghanistan and said that Arafat bore responsibility for the attacks. Salim Tamari joins us now. Uh, he's a sociologist at Berzait University, director of the Institute of Jerusalem Studies. Welcome to the War and Peace Report. It's good to have you with us. Can you talk about the effect of the Israeli bombing of uh, Palestinian cities? Well, for the last uh, two days, the major towns in uh, the West Bank and Gaza have been surrounded by Israeli troops. And uh, early this morning, troops have entered a number of these towns, including the place I live in, which is the city of Ramallah, where Arafat actually is at the moment meeting with his cabinet. Um, the uh, troops have declared curfew in the northern part of town. People cannot move from here. And 
the airplanes, mostly helicopters, have been shooting targets belonging to the Palestinian Authority. Hello? How significant uh, is um, this escalation right now? Well, it's uh, pretty significant given the fact that it puts Arafat in a very untenable position. The Israelis want, uh, as well as the Americans, want Arafat to control the violence, but they do not seem to address the causes of this violence, which is the uh, encirclement of cities, the increased confiscation of land, the, uh, uh, the diminishing work opportunities people have because they cannot get to the sources of their work. And this makes people very frustrated and creates an atmosphere where violence is committed. It also does not address the fact that violence is coming uh, mainly from the Israelis by making the life unbearable for the Palestinians and where uh, young people who become desperate uh, go on missions like the uh, suicide attacks on Israeli civilian targets. So uh, in order to bring about an end to this situation and uh, success to the mission of Ambassador Dini, I think we should address the root causes of this violence rather than just target uh, Arafat's inability to control the radical groups within the Palestinian territories. I was watching uh, one of the right-wing networks in the United States uh, yesterday, uh, Fox, uh, Fox News, and they had a headline up that said, Yasser Arafat expelled from Israel with a question mark. Um, what discussion, is there a discussion of this uh, right now, uh, where you are in Ramallah, where Yasser Arafat is, and is that a possibility? Uh, it seems the Israeli cabinet is divided on this issue with the more right-wing uh, groups within it, within it and uh, Sharon himself, the prime minister, um, increasing the weight of groups that call for uh, undermining the Palestinian Authority and some of them calling for the expulsion of Arafat out of the country. Uh, the other group, which is headed by labor leader, Mr. Shimon Peres, uh, see that Arafat is the only negotiating partner that Israel will have once the uh, dust is settled, and that they will need to deal with uh, a representative of the Palestinians in the future. Of course, uh, the aim behind the uh, Sharon government seems uh, to undermine any possibility for the emergence of a Palestinian state and to segment the Palestinian territories into cantons, which the Israelis can control uh, as separate entities uh, uh, away from the uh, general framework of uh, creating a Palestinian state. The Bush administration froze the assets of uh, financial groups accused of financing Hamas. Um, Bush uh, apparently is going to announce the action today. The freeze will apply to the assets of the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development, which is a group based in Richardson, Texas, uh, raised $13 million last year, one of the largest Muslim charities in the U.S. Do you know about this group? No, I don't know personally about them, but uh, I think uh, uh, it would be wrong 
to target uh, social networks which have uh, uh, groups within it associated with militant groups because in the United States there seems to be a confusion between the attack on New York, the rise of Islamic militancy, and the Taliban situation. Um, here, indeed, we have uh, radical Muslim groups that use violence uh, as a, a weapon, but this violence occurs in the context of what is basically a, a nationalist conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and an Israeli colonial presence in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, one should not confuse this kind of situation, which is much more similar to the ethnic conflicts in uh, Northern Ireland and Spain than it is to the uh, global uh, uh, violence generated by groups like Al-Qaeda. And Salim Tamari, um, the assassination by Israeli forces of Abu Hamoud, the uh, Palestinian military leader, what reaction has there been to that? Well, you see, uh, the the question of killing and targeting uh, militant leaders among the Palestinians has itself triggered violence against Israeli civilians, which many people have also condemned uh, in, in the Palestinian side. Uh, and the whole attempt to control violence by targeting uh, leaders on the other side itself becomes a vicious circle which has to be broken. The only way we can break it is by an external intervention such as the mission of uh, Mr. Tennant and Ambassador Zini, and also a more balanced European intervention, which could set a buffer zone between the Palestinians and the Israelis so that a, a proper peace uh, negotiations can start. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the telephone from Ramallah. Again, this is where Yasser Arafat is as well. We've been speaking with Salim Tamari, sociologist at Berzait University and director of the Institute of Jerusalem Studies. You are listening to the War and Peace Report. Stop the War Now, Edwin Starr, here on the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Los Angeles Times reporting that the Bush administration has quietly begun dispatching diplomatic, military, intelligence, and law enforcement agents to Asia, allegedly to take aim at al-Qaeda hubs in at least seven countries. Administration officials have cited the Philippines, Somalia, and Yemen as top priorities. They also mention Malaysia, Indonesia, and the former Soviet republics of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Meanwhile, the London Observer has reported that President Bush has ordered the CIA and senior military commanders to draw up detailed plans for an attack on Iraq and the creation of proxy forces in the country designed to overthrow Saddam Hussein. 
And the uh, Sunday Telegraph reported that the U.S. has asked Britain to help prepare for possible military strikes against Somalia. While the Bush administration begins to expand the so-called war on terrorism to any number of different countries, the U.S. continues to launch massive airstrikes against Afghanistan, killing hundreds of civilians over the weekend and further complicating efforts to get desperately needed aid to millions of Afghans facing starvation. The Bush administration continues to portray its actions as a simple case of good versus evil, civilization versus barbarism. Civilian victims of U.S. bombing in Afghanistan and those facing U.S. military action elsewhere might be forgiven for wondering where the line is drawn. We turn now to Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, leading scholar and critic of U.S. foreign policy, author of many books, including 911, just published by Seven Stories Press. He has just returned from a month-long trip to Pakistan. Welcome to the War and Peace Report, Noam Chomsky. Hi, Amy. It's good to have you with us. What were you doing in Pakistan? Oh, actually, <coughs> I was only in Pakistan for about three days. I was mostly in India for the last month. Mm-hmm. The last few days I passed through Pakistan. And what were you doing I, there? I was giving talks all over the place, meetings, talks. In fact, pretty much what I do here. And where were you in Pakistan? In Pakistan, I was just I was in Lahore and Islamabad. Uh, but that was only a few days. And what was the reaction there, as in well Pakistan. as in India, um, to well, in the Pakistan, war on Afghanistan? Well, it's a little hard to talk about a reaction. It's a military dictatorship. Uh, it's It's got a very free press, incidentally, uh, and a small sector of uh, um, sort of active uh, intellectual life, but it's very small. Uh, the uh, Probably the readers of the English language press uh, are in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, it's, uh, and you really can't say what's going on in the country because it's, uh, it's a country under military control with uh, a very uh, extremely uh, undeveloped, almost impenetrable to outsiders unless you really uh, live there. So I was in a little sector of uh, educated intellectuals uh, very good people. I mean, people have been in jail and tortured under the military dictatorships and that sort of thing. And they are granted a fair amount of leeway. So the press, for example, the English language press, not the Urdu press, is quite free and open. Uh, on the other hand, the heavy hand of the dictatorship is everywhere. So you know, just being there a few days, even people who live there don't know what's going on. But three days, I wouldn't hazard a comment. But those people that you spoke with, um, what was their attitude to the bombing of Afghanistan? Well, uh, the, these are. The, I was invited by the Ekbal Ahmed Foundation, and it's the people around Ekbal's friends and associates and other uh, English-speaking uh, sectors. Ekbal being the uh, yep. pr- the professor and intellectual who yep. was here in the United States right. for many yeah. years and died of yeah. cancer. Uh, they, um, these are, you know, these are what we would call sort of moderate peace movement people. Uh, so they're anti They're opposed to the nuclear bombing. They want reconciliation with India. They uh, are f- opposed to terror. They're opposed to the <coughs> mostly opposed to the American bombing. Uh, in fact, I would suppose almost all. Uh, but uh, pretty much constrained in what they can do. They don't really participate. And well, just to give you an illustration. Uh, one of my talks in Islamabad was uh, to a, a big 
audience with a lot of diplomats and journalists and so on. It's a pretty formal place. Uh, and it was supposed to be broadcast by Pakistan television but and was indeed filmed, but I was just told that uh, under pressure they backed off and apparently it won't reach anybody who wasn't there. Did you talk about Pakistan in that speech? Uh, yeah, not it wasn't the topic, but I talked about it. I was very critical of the dictatorship and talked about, in fact, I quoted Pakistani intellectuals, some in the audience, about the uh, enormous significance of uh, overthrowing the dictatorship and restoring democracy. I mean, it's interesting in Pakistan, even though uh, Pakistan has been a major supporter, uh, the military of the Taliban, uh, somehow uh, Pervez Musharraf has ended up uh, becoming um, uh, one of the, it sounds like, leaders of the free world, if you read the U.S. press. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that if you, you know, if you put yourself in, I mean, the American ambassador there, I should say, was just quoted uh, as saying that uh, uh, Musharraf is my kind of person, a decent, honest, uh, reliable person. You remember that phrase, I'm sure. <laughs> Suharto was our kind of guy That's to right. the Clinton administration. She just essentially quoted that. And uh, it's a telling comparison. Uh, Musharraf is a military dictatorship, a dictator. He's not the harshest one in the world. Uh, the, but if you put yourself in his shoes, he doesn't have many options. Uh, the, the country is, you know, it's barely surviving. I mean, it has a huge military, but it's a, it, 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 has, it doesn't have much of an economy. It has a huge military budget. It's in a military confrontation with India, which is, uh, you know, um, five times its size and uh, power, uh, which means that an enormous part of its budget goes into the military, and a lot of it goes into internal control. Uh, much of the population is, you know, scattered around, has no services, no education, no health, uh, no communications. Uh, and uh, the choices for him were either uh, no matter who he was, you know, who was Gandhi, uh, choose, follow what U.S. orders, or else you're in deep trouble. Uh, there, there, wasn't, there weren't a lot of options. I mean, I don't approve of the options he took, but we have to recognize that they weren't very broad. And, of course, they're hoping for, uh, uh, and have already received, a large U.S. payoff for that. It's also worth bearing in mind that almost everything that goes on in the subcontinent, either India or Pakistan, uh, they're focused primarily on their own problems. So there's a huge amount of coverage of the war in Afghanistan, but it's framed within the question of how is this going to uh, uh, affect the uh, relations between the United States and, if it's India, India, if it's Pakistan, Pakistan. So every time, uh, you know, Colin Powell passes through uh, uh, Islamabad, there are big uh, headlines and commentaries in the Indian press about whether this means that uh, the United States is tilting toward Pakistan. And the big issue for them is Kashmir. You know, if things are focused from their own point of view, I'm not unlike us. You know, I mean, if you read the American press, it looks extremely parochial. Everything's focused on what it means for the benefit of uh, what's called U.S. interests, meaning power interests in the United States. And uh, when you're there, it's not different. Just the same as if you're in Israel-Palestine. You read the Israeli or Palestinian press, they see the world from their point of view. And it's the same everywhere. 
you spent the bulk of your time in India. We're going to break for stations to identify themselves. I want to get a sense of what was the reaction there to the war on Afghanistan and uh, and how this attack on Afghanistan is uh, affecting uh, India in relations with the United States and with Pakistan. You are listening to the War and Peace Report. We're speaking with Noam Chomsky, and then we'll talk with him about the expanded so-called war on terrorism and the U.S. saying that, um, well, possibly uh, the United States is about to bomb Iraq, Somalia, and any number of countries. Stay with us. Where the world was put here for the children It is a place where every player to play But presently harmony is not what these people see So we shall see it one day One day, See the sunshine be for all of mankind I say that peace is when these leaders unify From poverty to liberty and love for each one is equal For we must live as one people See the reality of justice is not beyond our reason A righteousness of life will bring change in with the season a dedicated family affair, so stay believing. We'll sum it up in one word, one love, freedom. One World, One People, uh, from Brian Way's album, Cross Cultures. Our music maestro, Anthony Sloan, says it's an important album. I'm Amy Goodman. This is the War and Peace Report. We're talking to Professor Noam Chomsky, looking at the Press Trust of India. Uh, the headline says, noted U.S. intellectual Noam Chomsky has said the U.S. does not care much about the Kashmir issue and suggested that India and Pakistan settle it on their own. Uh, Noam Chomsky's just returned from a month-long trip, mainly in India, a few days in Pakistan. Is that accurate? No. Well, it, it illustrates what I just said. In fact, I barely talked about Kashmir when I was in India and Pakistan, but I didn't hesitate to mention it and said what I thought. Uh, however, when you look at the headlines, that's in both Pakistan and India, that's what you find, what I said about Kashmir, because that is the crucial issue for them. You know, I can talk about all kinds of other things, like maybe the world being blown up by nuclear weapons. But what's crucially important to them is what happens in Kashmir. That's their, uh, and in fact, they're, don't forget, Pakistan and India are close, have been for years close to war. In fact, had a war in 1999 uh, over Kashmir, and these are two nuclear-armed powers. Uh, it's a very, uh, uh, what I basically said, both in India and Pakistan, and what I think is... Uh, Although, let me stress, this is a minor part of what I was talking about. It was mostly in response to questions. Uh, what I said is that uh, the charges that each side makes against the other are basically accurate, um, you know, exaggerated, uh, sometimes misrepresented, but the basic thrust of them is accurate. So India is correct when it uh, accuses Pakistan of supporting um, uh, terrorist actions in Kashmir, uh, which are often murderous and brutal. Uh, and Pakistan is correct when it accuses India of extremely harsh repression in Kashmir and more fundamentally of uh, refusing to permit uh, any uh, political, any form of self-determination because it knows that if there's anything like a referendum of the kind that the UN called for 50 years ago, 
the population will probably vote for either autonomy within India or independence, and it doesn't want that. So the charges of each side against the other are basically accurate in their major thrust, and the only possible solution is for each side to recognize that, to come to recognize that what they are saying is at best half the truth, uh, and uh, that they'd better reach a reconciliation on this, or they're both doomed to destruction. Noam, what about uh, reaction in India to the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan? Well, as, you know, India is a very varied, complex place. You can't sum up India uh, even less than you can the United States. So, for example, two of the states in India are under communist governments, uh, actually the two that have more or less decent uh, um, quality of life standards, literacy, health, and so on, Kerala and West Bengal, in both of which I was. Uh, the uh, but by and large, I would say that the Indian the Indian press is overwhelmingly supportive of the bombing, and Indian elites probably also. The general population, you know, the kind of people we would want to know, and there are many, many of them. It's a huge part of the population. Uh, they are mostly opposed to it. So it's that the kind of split we're not unfamiliar with. The reason why they're in favor of it, say the press, just to keep to that, where it's clear, you know, you can see what the press is. And it's pretty uniform. Uh, again, it has to do with their relations with Pakistan and their place in South Asia and what they expect from the United States. Uh, India has always been strongly opposed to the Taliban. It's been a strong supporter of the Northern Alliance. Uh, it part, and it perceives it within its, the framework of its conflict with Pakistan. Uh, uh, India was also very close to it. It was, a, it was quite ambivalent about the Russian invasion. It never really criticized it. Uh, and they had close relations with Russia. And it's all part of their kind of geopolitical position. India sees itself as in a, as threatened by two enemies close by, China and Pakistan, right on its borders. It's had wars with both. Uh, Afghanistan is, uh, uh, you know, the other side of, take a look at the map, it's the other side of Pakistan. Pakistan wants... Uh, influence over or domination of Afghanistan for what it calls strategic depth because of its war with India. Uh, India wants uh, the same domination and control in order to, you know, contain Pakistan. Uh, and that's the prime, you know, almost everything is seen in those terms. When India comes out, and uh, the main concern, again, speaking of the Indian press and Indian elite opinion, uh, when they talk about the war against terrorism, they're thinking about the uh, Pakistani supported terrorism in Kashmir. And they are constantly condemning the bitter condemnations of the United States because the U.S. is, from their point of view, correctly uh, attacking uh, what it calls terrorism in Afghanistan, but it's restraining India from, say, bombing Pakistan uh, to stop the terrorism in Kashmir. That's overlooking. It's, it, it's the similarities to Israel, Palestine are, you know, it's not identical, but the same kind of dynamics. They do not want to face the fact that the terrorism in Kashmir is, was a direct consequence of their blocking any form of uh, political opening or political participation to the population. Yeah. Terrorism in Kashmir is real, but if you look at the timing and dynamics, uh, it followed uh, years of refusal to allow uh, political action, and it directly followed the uh, crushing of a... Uh, rather brutal crushing of a 
an, in, an independence autonomy party and the rigging of elections. Let's uh, move for a minute to what's happening in Israel in the West Bank and Gaza right now with uh, Israeli planes um, bombarding Palestinian cities, uh, particularly focusing where Yasser Arafat is right now in Ramallah as well as Gaza City. Um, w- and this discussion possibly uh, that's going on in the Israeli Knesset of uh, expelling Yasser Arafat and the comparisons that Shamir is making, uh, to that Sharon is making of uh, the Palestinians uh, to al-Qaeda. Uh, can you talk about this? Well, it, it's, it's a little similar. They, uh, there, there is a fundamental asymmetry, both in uh, India, Kashmir, and the Israel-Palestine. Namely, there is a military occupation. Uh, unless everything is seen within that framework, we're not talking about reality. So, for example, I mean, you know, take, say, uh, German-occupied Europe. Uh, the partisans were carrying out all sorts of terrorism. There's no doubt about it. And you could, uh, you know, con- if you want, you can condemn the terrorism against civilians. But to talk about it, and the Germans, the Nazis, uh, described themselves, and incidentally the U.S. more or less agreed with this, uh, described themselves as... Uh, defending the uh, legitimate governments against the terrorism of the partisans. And it's not totally false. I mean, it's so outrageous you can barely say the words. But if you think about it, it's not totally false. From, uh, and unless you uh, take into account the fact that there is a military occupation and these actions result from the military occupation, unless you talk about accept that, then we're simply not talking about the real world. Now, when you talk about, uh, say, I mean, yesterday, uh, Israeli, uh, what it said is Israeli planes bomb Palestinian targets. That's not quite accurate. It was U.S. planes and U.S. helicopters that bombed Palestinian targets. Uh, Israel doesn't produce F-16s, and it does not produce Apache helicopters. Same is true of the helicopter that uh, killed Abu Hanud. That's a U.S. helicopter, you know, sent in, in the certain knowledge that helicopters, U.S. helicopters, are being used for assassinations. So what we have is a U.S.-Israeli occupation, uh, and uh, uh, in the context of that occupation, uh, terrorist acts being carried out by the occupied population. That's the framework, Uh, and uh, uh, we have to look at it in those terms. Now, uh, getting back to your point about expelling Arafat, uh, there have been two basic positions in U.S.-Israel, the, the U.S.-Israel position, which is virtually identical. Uh, the question is what form of neocolonialism uh, should be imposed upon the territories? And we should be very clear about that. I mean, the doves in Israel, uh, people like Shlomo Ben-Ami, who was uh, Barak's negotiator, uh, leading dove, you know, I mean, within the Israeli, you know, not dove in the sense that you and I mean, but within the mainstream spectrum, far as far as you can go. His position was clearly, wrote it, that uh, uh, the Oslo agreements were neocolonialist. They were an F, uh, a framework for imposing a permanent dependence of the Palestinians on Israel. Almost, in his words, almost total dependence on Israel in what amounts to an ex- a permanent colonial situation. That's supposed to be the permanent relationship. And the only question is how we institute it. Well, the doves had one approach. The hawks had another approach. But it's all within that framework. It's within the hawk-dove framework, which presupposes a colonial dependence 
of the territories on Israel, Israel and the U.S. being a unit. Uh, then the question is, well, how do you implement it? So there's some people who want to implement it by uh, uh, a uh, kind of a South African-style cantonization program. That was Clinton at Camp David. Uh, there are others, like Sharon, who want to institute it by violence. We're talking to Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, who has just awarded an honorary degree from the University of Calcutta. Is that right? Yeah. So Dr. Dr. Noam Chomsky, or probably many more doctors. But um, on the issue of the bombing of Afghanistan and this uh, discussion of an expanded war, now that Afghanistan has been thoroughly pummeled, although it sounds like the most casualties are just happening now in these last weeks, unknown numbers of casualties. The U.S. is talking about expanding in the war. It's going to go on for a very long time, talking about Iraq and Somalia among the countries. Uh, can you talk about uh, what this means? Well, first of all, in Afghanistan, uh, the there are Afghans being killed by the bombing, and naturally, you know, people don't like it. Like if you read this morning, New York Times, you can read reports of tribal leaders around Jalalabad who are bitterly condemning the bombings that are killing their people. But we should remember that that's a tiny fraction of the deaths. Uh, the total number of deaths we have we do not know and we'll never know. Uh, there were We know the projections on which plans were based. Uh, they were based on the assumption that uh, millions of people, probably maybe 7 million if you can, you know, this is the standard figure, of people close to the scene. About 7 million people were on the border of starvation before the, before September 11th. Uh, after September 11th, under the threat of bombing, uh, international aid workers were removed. Uh, the aid that was coming in was stopped. Uh, it began again briefly in the early days of October, but then was stopped again when the bombing started. And since then, has been very haphazard. Uh, by now, there's food on the borders, but it can't get in, much of it. And part of the reason is that uh, um, the U.S. Is just, I mean, this is an open conflict. The U.S. is just unwilling to uh, devote resources to, say, clearing the roads so that food can get in. Uh, we don't know what the effect of that is. The expected effect was that literally millions of people might be facing uh, a slow death from uh, starvation, exposure, disease, and so on. And this is slow death. You don't die quickly from starvation. I mean, you can go, you know, months eating roots and leaves. Uh, may mean that your, you know, children are born uh, so malnourished that they die from disease. These are lingering, uh, massive deaths, and they will never be investigated. There's a kind of a principle that uh, the powerful do not investigate their own crimes very hard to find a historical exception to that. It holds almost totally for the United States. For example, we have almost no serious idea of the death toll in, say, into China uh, because we don't investigate that. That's our crime, so you don't look at it. You meticulously study the crimes of enemies, but not our own. Those are ignored. So we'd be pretty certain that we will never know the consequences of the bombing, but we do know the projections. So the uh, uh, the the very strong warnings from the uh, uh, UN World Food Program, the you know the Food and Agriculture Organization, and others that uh, millions of people literally are facing uh, the possibility of uh, uh, extreme suffering, possible death. Uh, that's the main 
the main effect. I mean, the killings by bombs, the so-called collateral damage, they're real, but that'll end up being probably in the thousands. Uh, the other toll will be far higher. Uh, as and uh, that's uh, it's it's on the, it's on those assumptions that policy has been formulated and that commentary is made when people say when you read well this is obviously a just war uh, those are the assumptions that lie behind that conclusion now as to expanding this elsewhere well you know we're talking we have to ask uh, the, right now they're plainly on a roll you know it's uh, you may recall a comment by. A.J. Musty, once the lead, one of the leading, most important figures in 20th century American life, in my opinion, a pacifist, radical pacifist leader for years. Uh, he once pointed out 50 years ago that the uh, the problem after a war is with the victors. Uh, they uh, think they have learned that violence pays, and who's going to teach them a lesson? Uh, he said that after the Second World War, and what followed showed the justice of it. And the same is true here. I mean, violence did pay, as it usually does. Violence almost always works, especially overwhelming violence. And it worked in this case. Uh, and now there's a strong tendency to just use violence elsewhere. And it, the violence is being employed by people who operate on the assumptions that I just outlined. Uh, and they're clear. Uh, we are entitled to use violence as we like, uh, no matter how many people get killed. Uh, and we'll call it right and just. And we can expect the uh, usual chorus of praise domestically to uh, uh, tell us how wonderful we are. You know, that's the way history works, unfortunately. Uh, so I think it's, and it's extremely dangerous. I mean, Europe is very worried. They're afraid that uh, uh, this, this uh, could expand into uh, major uh, uh, military operations, which could end up turning... You know, not only the Middle East, but large parts of the world into a total horror story. Nobody knows what will happen. For example, if if uh, uh, Saudi Arabia takes Saudi Arabia, uh, extremely important country because it has about a quarter of the world's oil. It's the main. It, that's the main center of Saudi Arabia and the region right around it of energy for probably the next generation at least, maybe more. And it's a very fragile situation. I mean, the government of Saudi Arabia has been a U.S. client since its origins. It's a brutal, corrupt government. Uh, the Taliban are just an offshoot of it. Uh, the U.S. has always supported it. Uh, U.S. support for Israel is, has been contingent in large part on uh, Israel's uh, providing tacit support for the Saudi Arabian dictatorship. It was Israel's destruction of secular nationalism, Nasser. Uh, that uh, uh, seen as protection of the Saudi Arabian dictatorship. It was that event in 67 that essentially established the U.S.-Israeli alliance. Uh, but it's a very fragile situation. The population is, even though you know the wealthy population is very uh, opposed, strongly opposed to the dictatorship, the uh, uh, and uh, disaffected, uh, and in the you know among the poor, it's much worse. Uh, many observers, close observers, have compared it to uh, the situation in Iran uh, right before the overthrow of the Shah. Uh, and it could be. I mean, nobody really knows, but it could blow up. And if it does, uh, we're talking about a major war. The U.S. is not going to abandon control over the major energy reserves of the world. Uh 
Noam, one of the speeches you gave uh, was at the Music Academy in Madras uh, on November 10th. Uh, we had a little spy in the audience taking notes, and you began by quoting Ernst Mayer. Can you talk about your major point there and um, what he has to do with the September 11th aftermath? Well, actually, I don't know if you were there, but you, if you were, you may remember that I quoted the same passages from Ernst Mayer at uh, Columbia last year a year ago in talks at Columbia. Uh, what he was pointing out is that uh, he was talking about something totally different. He's a you know, leading great, one of the great figures in modern biology. Uh, he was asking whether intelligence is, a, what is the adaptive value of higher intelligence? From a biological point of view, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And he pointed out that the biological evidence is that it's a bad thing. Uh, biological success uh, uh, is found among uh, uh, creatures like, say, beetles and bacteria. Uh, higher intelligence evolved once in history out of about 50 billion uh, um, species very recently, the last flick of an eye. And although he, that's where he stops, then I went on to point out that uh, in the roughly 100,000 years of uh, existence of higher intelligence in our what we mean by higher intelligence, human-style intelligence. This single species has in the last, in, uh, certainly had a history of extreme violence and destruction. In fact, it wiped out many other uh, species uh, uh, very quickly. Uh, and in the last couple of hundred years, it has developed the capacity and uh, has employed the capacity to wipe itself out along with much else. And we're facing a time in history when that's pretty close. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, cold and calculated savagery with which uh, humans destroy each other is pretty astonishing. Uh, what's just happened in the last couple of months is a good illustration of it. There's two major atrocities, the uh, attacks in uh, on September 11th, which are a huge atrocity, and the... Uh, uh, U.S. response to them, which in terms of its human toll is a much greater atrocity, both carried out with complete self-righteousness on the part of the perpetrators, uh, seeing themselves as right and just and uh, uh, you know, completely within their rights to pursue this. Uh, and that's a characteristic of human history. Uh, I, I didn't talk about that much. I then went on to talk about much more extreme cases which are right on the horizon, uh, such as, for example, the move towards militarization of space uh, that the U.S. is, is hell-bent on pursuing, uh, which has potentially awesome consequences. It may very well uh, bring about the destruction not only of the species but much else in the not very distant future. Uh, destruction of the environment is the same. And the ominous part of these uh, tendencies is that they're entirely rational within the framework of institutions and ideology that are largely accepted. And that's a very dangerous phenomenon. Uh, it's, uh, uh, if an you know, outside observer, say a Martian, were watching all of this, uh, it has very grim prospects for the future of this species and much of the planet. Do you think uh, it's too glib to say a man who is not elected president of the United States has declared war on the world? Yeah, even if he had been elected president, which was a sort of issue of statistical error pretty much, 
uh, I, I wouldn't say he's declared war on the world. He's following a policy. It's a somewhat extreme version of a policy which is basically fixed and doesn't change much from administration to administration. So there's been much made of uh, Bush's uh, unilateralism. Uh, on the other hand, the Clinton administration, like its predecessors, was uh, quite explicitly and openly committed to unilateralism, and they said so. I mean, Clinton's first speech to the United Nations in 1993 uh, made it very clear, as he put it, that uh, the U.S. will uh, act multilaterally when it is possible, but it will act unilaterally when it chooses. Uh, when the, the the Bush administration this time very pointedly refused to uh, 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 obtain a Security Council authorization for the attack on Afghanistan. It could have obtained it easily, not for pretty reasons. Uh, the other states with vetoes strongly support these actions because they want uh, authorization and support for their own terrorist activities. I mean, Russia is happy to get on board. It wants support for its monstrous atrocities in Chechnya. Same true of China. Uh, Britain and France would go along. The U.S. would have no difficulty in obtaining a clear, explicit authorization for its uh, attack on Afghanistan. It refused. It doesn't want it. Uh, just like a mafia don, it doesn't ask for a court order when he wants to collect protection money. You do not want to establish the principle that uh, you need higher authority. Uh, you're entitled to act on your own. That's called credibility in the international affairs literature have to maintain credibility, meaning you can act unilaterally on your own. Well, that's a pretty standard position of any state, at least any state that can get away with it. And for the United States, it's been a dominant position you know, throughout the period of its uh, hegemony in the region always and worldwide since 1945. Uh, Bush is at the, the people around Bush, and Bush is probably a vacuum, but the people around him, um, they're extreme examples of this. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they're frightening the world. Uh, the, remember that you know, U.S. policy, high-level U.S. planning documents from the Clinton era, not Bush, uh, advise that the U.S. should be uh, irrational and vindictive, uh, and that that's the national persona that we should uh, project uh, with uh, making it very clear that we have the right of first use of nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. Now we'll do it if we choose. Now those are virtual quotes from Clinton era, you know, strategic command uh, documents, important ones, the essentials of post-Cold War deterrence, the planning documents for the post-war era. Uh, this is These are public documents. I mean, they can make them public because they're confident that the intellectual world and the press will keep them quiet. But they're there. You can read them. Uh, and uh, they're not, it's not the only one. That's the position, uh, not a Bush position, a Clinton position, and borrowed from his predecessors, uh, which the world certainly sees. Uh, and uh, we uh, uh, overlook it at our hazard. When they talk about going to war with this country, that country, the other country, uh, we have to remember who's doing it. It's also worth remembering when one hears where any time anyone, I'm glad to hear that, Every time you said war on terrorism, you said so-called war on terrorism. That's right. It's just a logical impossibility for the United States to be leading a war on terrorism. After all, the United States is the one country in the world, the one country in the world, 
that has been condemned by the highest international authorities for international terrorism, namely the World Court and the Security Council. Uh, and uh, the other members of the coalition uh, of the just against terrorism are basically no different. Uh, they are terrorist states, Russia, China, Britain, and the rest. This camp, whatever it is, is it's not a war against terrorism. Uh, the uh, uh, it's uh, and the uh, a great power facing no external uh, deterrence can only be constrained by its own citizens. There's no other way. Well, on that note, and with that challenge to U.S. citizens, um, I want to th- say thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Noam Chomsky uh, just returned from his trip to India and Pakistan. And by the way, uh, an early happy birthday. Oh, thanks. I always remember December 7th, yeah, Pearl Harbor bomb. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and a few years before that, Noam Chomsky was born. Thanks. Noam Chomsky, a professor of linguistics, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of many, many books. Uh, his latest is 911, and it's published by Seven Stories Press. By the way, if you'd like to give uh, r- get a recent speech that uh, he gave in the United States before leaving for uh, his overseas trip, uh, just after the United States started bombing Afghanistan, uh, for information about that videotape, you can call 1-800-926-3921. That's 1-800-926-3921. Or you can go to our website at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. You are listening to the War and Peace Report. We'll be back in a minute. the holidays that's stormy blues with billy holiday you are listening to the war and peace report i'm amy goodman on friday the house passed legislation that would bail out the insurance industry in claims arising from future terrorism the bill which received the tentative backing of the white house would allow the government to cobble together about a hundred billion dollars to cover future losses for insurance companies Ultimately, if the government covers the industry's costs, taxpayers would bear the brunt of the burden. The House plan would require insurers to shoulder the first billion dollars in losses arising from a terrorist strike, while the government would lend money to pay 90% of any additional claims. The loans would be repaid by the industry and its policy holders. Reinsurance companies, which insure insurance companies, have indicated they'll no longer cover terrorism after December 31st when the majority of their policies expire. 
So we're joined on the telephone right now by Bob Hunter, who's director of insurance at the Consumer Federation of America. Can you talk about the bill that was passed by the House and what this means uh, for the insurance industry and for people in this country? Uh, it means that if, the, if a bill passes both houses and is signed by the president, that uh, uh, there'll be uh, uh, reinsurance for the insurance companies come uh, January 1st, uh, and therefore they should go on to uh, offer uh, full uh, coverage, including terrorism, uh, to the uh, policyholders. Mostly commercial policyholders are at risk here uh, of possibly losing their terrorism coverage. Quite a few states have already approved uh, uh, changes in the policies which would exclude terrorism. So um, uh, it really is very important, I think, that Congress act to back up the industry in a way that uh, requires a payback, because I don't th this is a very uh, rich industry, and, and uh, uh, and and the policies could be uh, uh, paid back uh, after after the fact. What they need is some certainty in the short term, and they and they can take care of it over the long term. Who is weighing in uh, on these uh, battles on Capitol Hill, and uh, what's going to happen in the Senate? Well, <clears throat> a lot of people weighing in. Uh, we had a what I think was a very unfortunate event at the uh, uh, at the last minute. I think the House committees did a very excellent job of putting together a bill that had uh, almost unanimous support. Uh, in fact, it passed by a, vo a voice vote. Uh, but then the leadership uh, threw in very uh, draconian uh, limits on liability of uh, potential victims, so firemen and so on, who might get might die in a, in a future event, their families would have very uh, uh, restrictive liability limits. Um, uh, the the original draft had had did have liability limits, but they were uh, much more modest. And um, I think that was unfortunate because now the Senate is put into a funny position because the, the Senate Democrats uh, have historically uh, been against those kinds of liability limits, and I and I think the original draft bill would have. Uh, probably been able to have been passed in the Senate, but now I think it has uh, significant obstacles. So I, I think the conference is going to be very interesting because I think there'll be a big difference on the liability uh, restrictions, uh, although I think maybe the basic underlying approach might be agreed to uh, between, the, between the conferees rather easily. Uh, uh, I don't know about whether the liability limits will end up uh, being a train wreck and, and cause this uh, bill to go totally off the track. What is the Consumer Federation of America's position? Well, we like the original uh, uh, liability limits. We, our position is that there should be a, f a, a federal bill backing up the insurance industry, that, that, that the industry should have to uh, pay it back over time, the taxpayers should be made whole, uh, and, uh, and, that, uh, and that there ought to be uh, uh, some limitations on liability, but they ought to be very modest and, and only uh, uh, tailored precisely for this need and not to try to sweep in uh, historic uh, uh, tort reform uh, provisions uh, uh, that uh, have caused such uh, rancor over the, over, the, over the past years. I think to bring those in at this late date was a big mistake by the House leadership. I wanted uh, Bob Hunter to bring in Harvey Wasserman in this last minute, anti-nuclear activist, author of The Last Energy War. 
Um, the House voted in virtual secret last week to continue to shield new reactors um, from normal insurance liability. Uh, can you explain that in these last minutes? Well, they they renewed they re 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 renewed the Price Anderson Act, which was passed in 1957, to originally to shield uh, uh, the atomic power industry because no utility executives would build nuclear plants if the government uh, did not uh, put a very modest, very small cap on the amount of liability. I mean, at this point, it's uh, after 47 or so years, it's up to uh, all of $9 billion, even though government reports show that a nuclear accident such as might have happened on September 11th if one of the jets had crashed into the Indian Point reactor, for example. Uh, that We know that such an accident would have caught, or a terrorist attack would have cost at least a half a trillion dollars. And uh, what the what the Congress has done is limited liability to nine billion. It's a, an, a total outrage, and uh, it really indicates that after all these, after half a century, really nobody has any faith in the nuclear power industry. What do you think should happen right now? Well, they, and the, uh, if anyone wants to build a new reactor, they should have to get their own insurance. I mean, uh, that alone, as Dick Cheney has publicly stated that if they don't have these uh, liability limitations, no one's going to build a new reactor, and that's exactly what should happen. One of the uh, reactor designs that's been approved by the Congress in this bill has no containment dome whatsoever. Um, and here we've had all this debate about whether or not a, the containment domes on our 103 reactors could withstand a jet crash, and the consensus very clearly has come down that it could not. And meanwhile, the, uh, the industry is pushing ahead with a reactor design called the pebble head reactor, or pe feeble head is what we would call it, it's actually the pebble bed reactor, that has no, uh, no containment dome over it whatsoever. What insurance company, what, what sane society would ever do that uh, after September 11th? It's quite amazing, actually. Well, I want to thank you both very much for being with us. Javi Wasserman, anti-nuclear activist, author of The Last Energy War, and Bob Hunter, uh, director of insurance at the Consumer Federation of America. And that does it for our program. By the way, again, if you want to um, get information about the videotape of Noam Chomsky's speech against the bombing of Afghanistan, you can call 1-800-926-3921. That's 1-800-926-3921. Um, you can also go to our website at democracynow.org. Jackie Suen is our webmeister. Look forward to seeing students at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York, on Wednesday evening at 5, and then later that evening at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, and, uh, folks, uh, you can continue to make your calls, and also you can email us uh, for uh, suggestions of programs that you'd like to hear at mail at democracynow.org. Democracy Now in Exile is produced by Chris Abrams, Brad Simpson, Miranda Kennedy, and Lizzie Ratner and Suganya Mahendran. Anthony Salone is our music maestro and engineer. Al Maitland at the helm at WBIX.org. Thanks to Amy Pomerlow at KPFA, KPFA in general, and affiliate station KFCF in Fresno. Look forward to coming out to San Francisco on December 15th. Thanks to Downtown Community Television and to Manhattan Neighborhood Network. We're broadcasting in exile from the embattled studios of WBAI, the studios of the band and the fire of the studios of our listeners. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening. Giving, 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 giving.